culture tends to dismiss middle-aged women and it tends to dismiss Gen X. And I think the combination can make you feel really like you, you don't exist in the public sphere. Welcome to Midlife Mixtape, the podcast. I'm Nancy Davis Coe, and we're here to talk about the years between being hip and breaking one. Where do I belong? Tell me why I'm here and what's taking this long. When can I move on? This episode of the Midlife Mixtape podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com forward slash midlife mixtape. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. And hey, one of those 180,000 titles is my book, The Thank You Project, Cultivating Happiness, One Letter of Gratitude at a Time. It's about a year I spent writing thank you letters to the people who had helped, shaped, or inspired me up to that point in my life. And it gives the reader a blueprint for doing it themselves and the science behind why gratitude and happiness are so tightly coupled. And a playlist, because I don't know if you noticed, but this podcast is called Midlife Mixtape. I obviously am a fan of the mixtape. And it comes out this month in audio on audible.com. So go to audibletrial.com forward slash midlife mixtape for your free audiobook. Surprise, I'm back. Hi, it's Nancy. And remember in the last episode in December when I said I was going to be on an indefinite podcast hiatus while I'm out doing book promotion stuff? Well, I lied, because that was before I saw a press release for the book that we'll be talking about today, and it was so on the nose for Midlife Mixtape podcast listeners that I took myself out of cold storage. Besides, I missed you guys, and I missed the thrill of clipping out the ums and the ahs and the noise of my next-door neighbor's leaf blowers from the audio tape. I think I'm a podcast nerd all the way down, so surprise, I'm back. Theoretically, I'll be going into hibernation again after this episode, and I really mean it this time because i got a whole bunch of book tour stuff coming up, which I'll talk about in a little bit, but who knows who I'll meet and want to introduce you to along the way or what press releases will grab me by the throat again. So if you're not already subscribed to the Midlife Mixtape Podcast, make sure you hit that button wherever you listen so you don't miss another unplanned episode. And you know what? If you haven't left a review yet for the Midlife Mixtape Podcast wherever you listen, please do that too. It makes it so much easier for people like us in the years between being hip and breaking one to know whether this show is for them. I hope you guys had a wonderful holiday and a happy new year and you've picked all the tinsel out of your hair and you're ready to rock 2020 now. This first month of promoting the book has been really cool. Uh, And in fact, today I'm over on WBUR, the Boston NPR affiliate, has a Kind World podcast, and I'm their guest there today talking about the Thank You Project. So after you've listened to this podcast, check out the Kind World podcast today. One of my favorite things that has come from the readings is that people have started writing letters, and they're telling me about how that made them feel and what the impact has been. But there was one I heard about, a family that gifted the thank you project to their grandma and enclosed with it a thank you letter written to her by each family member. Shut up, I'm not crying, you're crying. I mean, how nice is that? That's the coolest thing about my book is that it's really just a starting point for other people to take this idea of expressing gratitude to the people who have made your life better 
and they're making that idea better. So I love hearing those stories. If you've read The Thank You Project and you liked it, I hope you'll help spread the word. You could review it on Amazon or Goodreads or barnesandnoble.com. You could share your recommendations on social media or in real life. You could snap a picture of yourself reading it and post it on Instagram. Make sure to tag me at Midlife Mixtape so I can see it. All of that stuff helps make this little blue book ripple further and wider, which hopefully means more thank you letters being sent, which hopefully means more people feeling better. And it means so much to me to have that kind of support from you guys. I really do appreciate it. I will be hitting the road for readings in the last part of January and early February, and uh, I'll be in Marin County, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, Rochester, New York, hometown party, woot woot and then back up in Northern California, where I live. And there's more dates being added. So head over to davisco.com, D-A-V-I-S-K-H-O.com, and look for the events and appearances tab to see if I'll be near you sometime in January and February. I would love to meet Midlife Mixtape Podcast listeners in person. That would be so cool. Today's guest, I'm so excited about this. Today's guest is Ada Calhoun, who is the author of Why We Can't Sleep, Women's New Midlife Crisis, an expansion of her viral story for Oprah.com about Gen X women, a generation-defining exploration of the new midlife crisis facing Gen X women, and the unique circumstances that have brought them to this point. Why We Can't Sleep came out in early January from Grove Atlantic and is an audiobook from Audible. Did you hear that pre-roll ad? I hope you were listening. Calhoun's last two books were St. Mark's is Dead, The Many Lives of America's Hippest Street, and the memoir Wedding Toasts I'll Never Give. In addition to writing her own books, Ada has worked as an A-list ghostwriter since 2009, collaborating on 14 nonfiction books for major publishers. And you know what, I didn't realize until I was getting ready to record this, that Ada contributed the excellent essay called Lab Report to the Beastie Boys book. Now, if you're a Beastie Boys fan at all, you got to check this book out. It came out a couple of years ago. And there's one essay that I that really made an impression on me, and I didn't realize until this week that it was Ada who'd written it. So it's laid out in the style of a high school lab report. And the problem that it's trying to solve is we hate sexism, we love the Beastie Boys. And this female fan of the Beastie Boys felt vastly reassured reading this, because I always felt so terrible when I was singing along happily to the lyrics of the song Girls. You know which one it is. Ada's new book is getting a ton of buzz, so I doubt you're sleeping, but if you are, wake up. Let's hear about Why We Can't Sleep from Ada Calhoun. Ada Calhoun, welcome to the Midlife Mixtape Podcast. I'm so glad you're here today. I'm so glad to be here today. You wrote a book that inspired me to bring the podcast back from hiatus. That's how good it is. I couldn't wait to talk to you. <laughs> well, I'm so uh, excited to talk with you, with you about why we can't sleep women's new midlife crisis. And I let you know that when I reached out to you to invite you on the show, I was sit- I think I was typing the email at you know 5:45 a.m. with under eye patches, and you know I'd be- I'd been up for an hour and a half solving the mysteries and worries of the world already. So <laughs> the title really resonated for me, and I'm guessing it will for some of you listening. But the most important level set we have here is. Ada Calhoun, what was your first concert and what were the circumstances? Uh, my first concert was Michael Jackson's Victory Tour Shut when I was the front door. Eight years Come on. old. Yes. How old? Eight. <sighs> what a way to start. <laughs> it was at Madison Square Garden. I think it was my friend Alexis Martinez who brought me there. And I remember it being really magical. I still have a very visceral memory of the program. Okay. So the cover of the Michael Jackson, actually it was the Jackson's victory tour had all of them wearing safari gear. 
Oh, sure. Pith helmets. <laughs> and they're like on a Jeep and there's like jungle behind them. So yeah. that was the that was the concert where he had to take his siblings along. Right. <laughs> his father was like, no, you're famous. You're, bring them all along with you. And so it was all of them together. I can't even remember the days when concerts had programs. I'm trying to think of the last time I went to anything where they had a handout. Oh, yeah. Good point. No, it was a big handout, too. It was like extra, extra big, and it was Pepsi-sponsored. Um, sure. And there was like a thousand pictures inside. Oh my gosh, that is so fun. And I loved when I was flipping through your books, you have a mixtape with your book. Yeah. And I'm wondering, I, do you think Gen X writers from now on, we will always include a mixtape? Because I had seven in mine. That's so funny. Well, you know, the last, <laughs> this is my third book to have a mixtape. So I wrote a history of St. Mark's Place um, a few years ago in the East Village. And I included a mixtape of songs that mention St. Mark's Place. And then I had a book that came out a couple of years ago about marriage, and I had a mixtape of songs about marriage in the back. And that, let's just, just be clear, the first book is St. Mark's is Dead, and then the essay collection is Wedding Toasts I'll Never Give, which is based on a really great modern love essay, which I loved because if you've been married a while and you go to a wedding, you have a different, you have a different <laughs> perspective from some of the... Uh, from some of the toast. Yeah. Well, I loved that your mixtape for uh, Women's New Midlife Crisis included Unsatisfied by the Replacements. I've been singing that nonstop and um, Losing My Edge, LCD Sound System. That resonated. <laughs> <laughs> so do you put the mixtape together before you're writing, as you're writing, after? How, how do you do that? Just as I'm writing the book, because I tend to listen to music uh, at the library or at coffee shops whenever I'm working. Mm -hmm. And anytime I hear a song that seems relevant to what I'm working on, I just put it in a little file. And then um, at the end, I use all those songs. Loved it. But let's get right into it. Because honestly, I think this So the book is called Why We Can't Sleep. And if you are sleeping like a baby at midlife, good for you. God bless. Not You're your not anybody I know. <laughs> Most people I know struggle with this. And so honestly, when I first picked it up, I thought, oh, it's going to be like, here's some techniques for falling asleep at night. And it's not really that, although it, the, I think you will sleep better after you read it. It really is a close look at why Gen X midlife is different. And I loved right from the first page, dedicated to middle-aged women in America. And the quote is, you're not imagining it and it's not just you. And I think that the gift that writers can give the world is representation and normalization. Mm -hmm. So you are... It, with this book, I think whoever you are, you will feel seen. And yes, the book is targeted towards women, but I think there was a lot, you know, that that would resonate for male readers as well. So, why did you decide to write this book? And can you talk a little bit? Just give the Reader's Digest version of what what you're trying to do with why we can't sleep. It actually started a couple years ago. I was having the world's worst summer. I was really miserable and like broke and I had a ton of credit card debt and I was the breadwinner. So I was really worried. And I was just up every night, like three, four in the morning, just like, what's what happened? Like, I've done everything right. I've been working since I was like 14 years old. And I just, I felt like everything was at a dead end. And I just felt, I felt old and I felt tired. And that was the moment when this editor from Oprah Magazine called me and said, my friends and I are having a hard time. Like, do you think there's something going on with this generation? And I like dismissed it initially. I was like, oh no, like you can't just say based on like three people that this is a generational problem. This is just us. But she was like, just look into it. So I spent a few months researching 
and I wound up writing the 6,000 word story for Oprah.com that was just like, if you're having a rough time, here are all the reasons why that might be. And some of them were cultural and some of them were related to our childhood and some were economic, the way that prices have gone up and wages have not, and just on and on, all these different reasons. And I got so many hundreds of messages from women my age saying that they were grateful because it, it gave some context to what we're experiencing. And then I was asked to expand it into a book. So then I, I went deeper. And it was it's interesting because I initially had that same sense, you know, that it's the Gen X thing. We're not special, right? We take pride in the fact that we're we're not um Oh, I don't want to make, I don't want to offend my millennial listeners, but nobody <laughs> ever told us we were special. Let's put That's it true. that way. Yeah. So when I started reading this, I was thinking, um, I'm not sure this is going to sell sell me because I don't, you know, our mothers went through midlife, their mothers went through midlife, right? You know, everybody goes yeah. through it. But you laid out a really clear argument about why ours is different and in what ways it's harder. And we're not saying that our, our foremothers sailed through it either, but there no. are some very specific things. So talk a little bit about your process, because that I found really interesting. You had both a combination of anecdotes and interviews, but also quantitative research. So can you talk a little bit about how you approached it and where you found your sources? My basic approach was what would be interesting or helpful to a woman who's having a hard time right now? What would be good to know? And it was guided a lot by what I wanted to know um, or what I thought would be interesting and, and also just the best stories I could find that really, to me, epitomize what it means to be a Gen X woman in middle age. So I started out when I was doing the article, uh, casting a really wide net through Oprah's social media networks. So I just got hundreds of women that way uh, to, to give me stories and, and to offer themselves up. And then I basically tried to make the interviews for the book kind of reflect the demographics of America. So I tried to get every state. I tried to make sure it was racially yeah. diverse. I tried to make sure that it was, it was you know, women who go to church, women who are atheists, uh, women who live in cities, women who live in the country, women who stay at home with their kids, women who have like high powered jobs and just to, to really make sure that it wasn't just for people in Brooklyn. Right. So I talked to probably 200 uh, women around the country. And then I just tried to find as many experts as I could who talk about different aspects of midlife. And I just read hundreds of books and I tried to just distill all of that into what was seemed most relevant and seemed most interesting. And I tried to find things that were funny also. <laughs> Which you did. Well, so, and some of the writers you spoke to have been past guests on the show, like Jonathan Rauch uh, and Barbara Bradley Haggerty, who, whose oh, work I think it's really important. Uh, and I wanted to just say the way that you build in the anecdotes, I think it's kind of similar to what I tried to do in my book, The Thank You Project, where when you're sharing stories of how you approach something or how someone uh, is going through a particular situation, rather than making that specific to the person situation, what the hope is that it gets you thinking about how that manifests in your world. And I think you did a really good job of that because there are, are such a wide range of, of experiences and viewpoints that mm -hmm. maybe I don't, maybe I'm not feeling exactly the same way, but it's reassuring to know there's other people kind of thinking about these issues or, or facing these same challenges. So I really like the way you weaved that together. I bet the interviews themselves were therapeutic for you and the interviewee. I wondered if how, how those actually felt. I, I think they were. They definitely were for me. It definitely was the case that I wound up feeling really close to a lot of the women that I interviewed because 
everyone was so lovely about really sharing super personal stories. And well, and they really were probably so it. grateful to be asked, Ada. Most, <laughs> most <laughs> well, of us are like, oh, I guess I'm just suffering on my own. I'm not going to say anything. Well, it's so funny you say that too, because this one woman that I, I approached, I asked her if I could interview her. I'd found her on like a message board. And I think she was in Alaska. I hadn't, I didn't have anybody in Alaska. And I was reading these Gen X thing. And anyway, I thought she was really smart and really funny. And I wrote to her and I said, can I interview you for this book I'm working on? And she told me she, she cried, like it made her cry to get asked. And I, I said, you know, what did I do? Like, did, was it, <laughs> was it because I implied she was middle-aged? Like what, what happened? And she said, no, just no one ever asks about me. And I thought that was so, so moving. Just this idea that, yeah, we don't really, the culture tends to dismiss middle-aged women and it tends to dismiss Gen X. And I think the combination can make you feel really like you, you don't exist in the public sphere. Well, not after this book comes out. (laughs) So let's dive down into some of those factors that make Gen X midlife different. And I'm particularly interested to know if there were any that surprised you. The, The number, I guess, that surprised me the most was I, I really was fascinated by the Equality of Opportunity Project at Harvard and just how the, the American dream doesn't really exist anymore. And we still keep saying that it does and acting like it does. And we grew up being taught that if we worked hard enough, that's what was going to happen. And it, it hasn't. And so especially for women. So the, the number that I, I thought was fascinating was only one in four Gen X women will out-earn her father. Right. Even the researcher that I talked to, he said, no, that's not what they expected to see either because You think, oh, women are so much more educated. They're out in the the workforce so much more. And the idea that we still wouldn't hit those same heights um, that our boomer fathers did, it's, it's surprising. One of the things that I never had thought about, but of course it makes logical sense, is that uh, the age that Gen X women who do become mothers have their first kid is higher than our moms. Uh, So we're older when we become parents, which has two implications. We're, more likely to have young kids when our parents are at an age where they need help. And we're more likely to be going through perimenopause when it's all going down. So you meant (laughs) like there was a line in the book where you said, you know, our, our moms, our grandmothers were completely done with childbearing by the time they were in their mid forties, which my mom was. Yeah. And I never had thought about that. I mean, my, my youngest kid moved out this year to start college and I'm 53. So Mm -hmm. I have, an 86 year old mother and 86 year old mother-in-law whose care, you know, I'm, I'm concerned with. So uh-huh. there is things that my mom didn't have to deal with when she had teenagers in the house that I did. Right. And I had never thought about that before. And the parenting expectations are different now. So oh, an- yes. another number. <laughs> That's another- a good one. Yeah. <laughs> well, another number I thought was interesting was that like we spend more quality time with our children now as working mothers than our mothers did as stay-at-home mothers in the 70s. We are much more hands-on at the same time that we're working a lot more and older and going through perimenopause. So it's the perfect storm. Right. And then there's the whole factor of um, Gen X women who haven't had children, either by choice or circumstance, who you know, in the olden days, there came a date where you were not going to be able to have kids anymore and you you know, made your peace with it, however you did, and went on to the next thing. But now because of reproductive technology, that decision gets delayed and drawn out. And uh, I had Melanie Notkin from Savvy Auntie on the show once where we talked a lot about that, that it kind of extends this period where if you wanted to have kids and you didn't, you can't just say, well, okay, I, you know, it's, it's passed and now I, now I can move on. It's, it makes it much harder to move on. Yes. 
That's true. I think so. And, that, and, and that's a piece of it too. Yeah. So many women that I, I interviewed. So, so a lot of my closest friends don't have children. They don't want children. They're, you know, they're perfectly happy with that. But then another group of friends of mine and women that I talked to, they weren't sure. They kind of think like they would like to have kids at some point, but they either haven't met the right person or they don't have enough money to feel ready to do it, or they don't feel established in their career. There are all these different factors. And like you say, it just drags on and on for decades. I mean, if they were in their late 20s thinking maybe at some point, now they're in their mid 40s, and they're still in that state of thinking like, well, maybe someday. Right. Now, one of the other, uh, I think this is two chapters, but I'll combine them here. You talk about job instability and money panic. They're connected. Uh, Yeah. Uh, And also, you know, a little bit different than what our parents went through. So do you want to talk a little bit about why that's different for Gen X? And and, and, and also, I want to say, all of this stuff is going to pertain to millennial women, too. So I, I, always, I always say I wish pe- I wish younger women would listen to this show because I think you would be encouraged. And this is in one this is in this arena, you know. It's we're we're going to figure this out for you, little sisters. We're going to try to figure this out, or at least tell you you'll get through it. Yeah, no, I think it. And I have actually heard from some millennial women who have read the book and and saw it as a cautionary tale, and also as a kind of uh, encouragement to, to change things up or to, to think mm. things through now so that they don't get into some of these situations that a lot of right. the NX women are facing. Uh, so yeah, so, mo- so money panic and, um, and job instability. So because of the way that the gig economy has, has been increasing and the way that there is no real loyalty from employers now, everyone that I talk to basically is either afraid of being fired or was fired and now is freelance or is just in some kind of very precarious position where either they're being replaced by millennials or the jobs that they thought they were going to have are still held by boomers and so they're not rising up or they have gone freelance and every job could be their last at any moment. It's There's a real fear there. And couple that with the fact that we have more death than any other generation. We've saved very little, especially women, have saved very little. Uh, and and you, you get a recipe for, for real fear, real legitimate fear at this age. And don't worry, listeners, we are going to get to solutions in in a minute. I just want to make sure we've laid out, I'm going to paint the darkest picture I can before we get to that. Yeah. I mean, you talk about Gen X women who out earn their, their fathers. I think this for me was one of the most interesting differences between my dad and me. Like he never could understand. I, I job hopped a lot in my younger years. Uh I, you know, I've been freelance and, and consulting for the past decade plus, but prior to that, he couldn't understand how every three years I would quit and go do something different. He spent, you know, his entire career at Eastman Kodak and it would panic him when I did it. And I said, dad, everybody's doing, you know, and by the way, had I found a job that was as cushy, my dad worked hard, but you know, he had a lot of nice benefits working at Kodak. That just doesn't exist anymore. Nobody has that job. I don't know one person with that job now. Mm -hmm. Nope. But the last thing I want to mention this, because uh, I was so glad you wrote about it is the breathtaking and heartbreaking lack of information around perimenopause. And I have to set this up with, have you guys seen the Baroness Von Sketch skit? I'll link it into the show notes, but it's basically just this woman talking to her friends, her mother, her doctor going, I don't know, is it perimenopause? Is it? Is it? I'm hot. I don't know. Is it? It can't be, is it? (laughs) And nobody knows the answer. And that's what Ada writes about. (laughs) Nobody knows. 
And why is that? Because the medical community has done very, very little research on this issue that affects 50% of the population. Mm-hmm. And that makes me furious. That part of it just made me so mad to think about, of course, they didn't study it because most of the researchers never had a hot flash because they were men. Yeah, no, it, it's pretty, it's pretty infuriating. Um, and I talked to a lot of medical experts and, and they said, frankly, like the menopause field doesn't pay very well. Um, so people go into delivering babies and, and other fun things and they, they don't spend the time um, really studying how menopause works in women's health. I'll just say, I'm going to leave a link. You included this in the book, and I'm going to leave a link in the show notes to menopause.org. Find a menopause practitioner because there are people who specialize in the field. I didn't even know that. Yes, I didn't know that either. And I, But I will say that you know I am pretty well educated. I live in a major city. I have health insurance. I have means. And I have had a lot of trouble finding uh, a doctor who takes my insurance, who is also uh, certified by the North American Menopause Society, who is taking new patients. Like it's, it's a challenge for all of us. Right. Well, I think the thing that saves me is my doctor is a woman who's 10 years older than me. So everything I go through, she's experienced personally, and I can talk really frankly with her about it. So that's been good. But I will include the Baroness Fun Sketch thing because it killed me. I laughed so hard. (laughs) All right. So now we're going to pivot to the part where we talk about solutions, where Ada does not solve the entire set of problems in the world, but I think she shines a lot of light on them. And the the first thing I want to say is it's not our problem to solve alone all these issues that that are keeping Gen X women from sleeping at night, right? You know, it's this idea of women holding up half the sky. People, we're doing all these things that nobody even sees us doing to try to make things okay for everyone else around us. And that's what's keeping us up at night. That's a major part of the problem. Yeah, I think that's very well said. And I, and I think that to me, that was the main goal of the book was just to say, you know, we don't talk about women enough. We don't talk about what women do in the world because I think it's not, it's not very glamorous often. It's not, it's not the midlife crisis that men have in novels and in Michael Douglas movies where, (laughs) you know, it's very dramatic and exciting to watch or, you know, the American beauty where you're, you know, like all of that is what we think of when we think about midlife crises. But I think for women, often it's much quieter and we are just working through it. Like we're working hard at, you know, in all these different areas. Did you ever read the book Maxed Out by Katrina Alcorn? No, I heard about it. I haven't read it. So she was, uh, she's been a past guest. I'll link to her, uh, her episode as well. But you know, it's, it's this idea that lean in is great if you have five nannies and tons of support, but for the rest of us, there's some really specific things we need, like free, great childcare or flexible work schedules. And it's not necessarily in our power to fix those things. It's got to be a much bigger conversation. And so anything like that book maxed out or your book that elevates the conversation and makes it more, it raises the profile, I think is really helpful. I also hope that it counteracts the expectations we were raised with. I think Generation X was told, like, you can do anything, you can have it all, you can, you can do it all. Ada, we're all the Anjali women, okay? We all (laughs) can do that. (laughs) Of course we can. We can bring home the bacon, fry it up in the pan. Fry it up Um, in the pan. Yeah, and buy our and buy our perfume at the drugstore. We can do all those things. You know that I bought some of that on eBay. I found some Anjali perfume. It's pretty awful. 
It's. I was just going to say, is it as bad as I remember? Because it was not good. It's not a good perfume. Yeah, no, it's not good. I mean, you're right. It's the messaging that we grew up with. And it's and it's the idea of looking at it and saying that didn't work then. And it's sure not going to work now. Yes. And I think that it's hard to deprogram ourselves. I still have it where I'm like, you know, oh, I've done this and this and this, but it's not enough. Nothing's ever enough. And that was something that it was like a refrain I kept hearing from women where they would say like, oh, you know, I have this family, but I never had a career. Like, what did I do wrong? But I didn't do that too. Or vice versa. And, and I just, I think we really were sold a bill of goods. I think that we were told that all of this was possible and it's not, it's not all possible. Right. One of the other things you talk about is reframing. So you want to describe what that is? Yeah. So I teach memoir classes sometimes. And, and one thing that I find really cathartic about the process of writing memoirs and, and, and helping people do it is like, looking at your life as a story and trying to say like, who are the good guys in the story? Who are the bad guys in the story? You know, what is the beginning, middle and end? And what were the turning points? And I think if you're able to really to do that and to try to come up with a turning point where it gets better, like where you learn things Mm -hmm. and, and you can put yourself on an upslope narratively, I think it can, it can really help you see your life in a new way. And this is the point where I think your book and my book kind of have a little Venn diagram overlap because in the process of writing the 50 thank you letters that I wrote, you know, that I write about in the thank you project, you know, sitting down once a week to think about my relationship with 50 different people was a really good way to reframe in in looking at digging into why I was grateful to someone and, and how they had helped me. It was very useful in letting go some past resentments and Mm -hmm. also getting some perspective and, and looking back over time and saying, Oh, I didn't even realize at the time that I got this good thing out of this seemingly bad situation. Cause some of the letters I wrote, but didn't send to, to, you know, ex-boyfriends or terrible bosses because I could tell with the with the gift of experience that, that I'd actually benefited from it. So I do think the reframing is a really powerful coping mechanism as you're passing through this, you know, the years between being hip and breaking one. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything else there? There was, uh, I had also noted that you talked about, uh, you know, patience and just waiting it out a little bit. I, I told you I'm 10 years down the road from you and I really do think it gets better. I do think it gets easier. I do keep hearing that and I'm holding on to it. Like from hold from on to it. In their 50s and, and 60s, <laughs> it's like that this is just a rough time of life. Like the especially the years leading up to menopause uh, emotionally and physically are really rough. And then this is the time when, like, yeah, your kids are theoretically in really needy stages and your parents are probably sick and they're they're just a lot of forces at work against you. So I think just knowing that it's going to come to an end has helped me. And then the other thing I'll say is that like getting support from other women has been huge for me. So starting clubs, joining clubs, I think this is something our our mothers and grandmothers did like between consciousness raising and, you know, the stitch and bitch and the coffee club and all that stuff. Like they did that. And I think we threw it out because we were too busy. And I think we or need it. I need it. Yeah. And it's, and it's hard too, because, and this is, it goes across generations. I think uh, the fact that we're all digitally connected has given a blow to some of our real life relationships, right? You know, you're not as likely to get in your car and go meet somebody for coffee. If you can just text them and there's a different quality to the relationship when it's in person versus digital. And I think we, just as much as we encourage our kids to develop skills and be able to move around in the world in real life. I think we sometimes 
need to remind ourselves to do that too. I, I mean, I definitely have benefited from in-person meetings and coffee dates and all that so much more than from hours and hours and hours spent online. I just, I don't, right. I don't feel good after, like if I go on social media and even if people are saying nice things or whatever, it, like it just, it doesn't feel the same because I'm just still in my house staring at a screen. Right. Um, and and my to- thumbs start to hurt after a while. I'm going to be honest. <laughs> my thumbs get swollen. I can't do it. I just meet me outside. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and the other thing, of course, is the under eye masks. Those I recommend. Uh, you may not need them now, but I have a, I was trying to, I couldn't, I can't remember the brand I use, but I got them on, got them online. And that has made me feel better about being unable to sleep. I can mask it better than I than I'm I here could for before. all serums and anything. <laughs> <laughs> I was discussing serums last night with some girlfriends. We were like comparing notes on all of our different bottles. Oh my God. My my twenty one year old daughter who's home from college has told told me that she's now like obsessed with skincare. I said, "Welcome to the club of womenhood." What do you do? You want to talk about hyaluronic acid? I can talk about it for hours. So, for somebody who's listening, Ada, is there a quick hit that you recommend? Something they can do right now to feel better, sleep better, feel less alone when it comes to all of these pressures that we have at midlife as Gen Xers? I think start a club. I know it seems counterintuitive because it's it's doing something else, but you know, figure something that's like once a month where you get together with two to 20 of your closest women friends around something like anything that's fun or pleasurable. I just think we have, we need more pleasure and joy and connection. That's such a great idea. What's your, what's yours that you do? Mine is called Sob Sisters. That's my club that I started with uh, two journalist friends of mine because they used to call women journalists, sob sisters in the 30s as in a sort of dismissive way. Oh, they're just getting the sappy tearjerker stories in the courtroom. Uh, they're not real journalists. And so we reclaimed that name and we have a bunch of like really cool women who meet up once a month and have lots of drinks and we do reading. It's great. Awesome. I have my giving circle. I do that quarterly with my friends here in Oakland where we get together at somebody's house and uh, pool our funds and donate it to donate to an organization that one of the members has uh, presented. So we're actually, we're going to be doing that the night after this, after this airs, we're doing our first one of 2020. Yeah. Spend the first hour drinking wine and gossiping about our husbands. It's fantastic. Uh, (laughs) All right. I have one last question for you. What one piece of advice do you have for people younger than you? Or do you wish you could go back and tell yourself? Oh boy. You know, I I think that, I just would tell myself to have less, less expectation for myself. I know it sounds bad because it is good to aim high and to reach for the stars and all that. But I think I put so much pressure on myself to do everything and do everything perfectly. And so many women I know also did that where they just, they felt like they had to nail it in absolutely Mm -hmm. every aspect of their lives. And they judge themselves, not just on one thing, not just on like, do I have a nice home or do I have a good job? But on those things, plus, you know, how do I look? Plus, am I giving back? Plus, you know, like, am I earning enough money? Am I doing enough for my parents? Yeah, like all of it. And I just think you can only pick a couple things like to really care about. That's I guess that's right. my advice. Pick, pick some, don't pick them all. <laughs> that is great advice. Give yourself a little bit of a break. I don't know. I, I find myself coming back to the thing over and over again. What would you say if it was happening to a friend and not to you? Like, would you yell at your oh. friend for not being perfect in every arena? No, of course not. Oh, that's you know, good. I like that. Treat yourself as well as you would treat a complete stranger. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Ada Calhoun, author of Why We Can't Sleep, Women's New Midlife Crisis. Uh, it's out this month. You guys definitely check it out. 
And thank you so much for being on the show. I really enjoyed talking with you. So did I. Thank you very much. See, it's not just you and you're not imagining it. Let me know what you thought of this episode. You can email me at dj at midlifemixtape.com. You can tell me via Facebook or Instagram or Twitter at midlifemixtape. I'd love to hear whether you have plans to, or maybe you're already doing what Ada suggested at the end of the episode, starting or joining a club or doing some other regular social activity with your friends to help get through some of the harder parts of this phase of life. Let me know. Okay, that's it for me. I swear. I mean it this time. No more podcasting for a bit unless I change my mind and do another podcast episode. So here's to 2020, you guys. Let's get out there and make it matter. I don't want to be this. Don't want to be that. Don't want to give up. I want to give back. I want to be free by whatever means. Whatever you want from me, I want to be. Don't want to be this. Don't want to be that. Don't want to give up. I want to give back. I want to be free by whatever means. Whatever you want from me, I want to be. I wanna be, I wanna be free by